I can't get past the fact, like, I think this is a business that's better off primed for a licensing sure. deal. I just not sold on the D to C. But you know what? As we go, yeah. If you can't dream big enough, Ariel, that's okay. <laughs> that's fine by me. <laughs> just kidding. Who's the mean mermaid now? <laughs> <laughs> right. John is the mean mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and, well, intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Ariel, and I'm joined today by John Dick. Hey, everybody. And today we are going to review the season finale for season 14. Just wrapped up uh, the latest season on Hulu. So very excited to chat through some of the segments that we saw in this last episode. So and what a final episode of a season. I mean, oh, yeah, an emotional roller coaster. I cannot wait to get into yes. it. It's been a long time since I cried during a Shark Tank <laughs> episode, so jam-packed with all the good feels. But before we get started, it's time to get paid. There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey, but there is the all-new Service Hub from HubSpot. It makes it infinitely easier to scale customer support and increase retention. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Proactively drive retention with customer health scores that help keep your business ahead and give your entire go-to-market team the data they need to operate as one unified, powerful front. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com service to do more for your customers today. First up in the tank, we have Tank Sinatra asking for $500,000 for a 10% equity, which comes out to a $5 million valuation. And he comes to the Sharks with Influencers in the Wild, The Game, which is a board game about the life of being an influencer. You go around on the little board, you pick up followers along the way. It's essentially like a life or monopoly style game, except instead of money, you're gaining followers and you're gaining internet traction. <laughs> I you know, candidly had to look up Tank Sinatra. I'm not very familiar with who Tank is, but is very well known in the digital space for being this huge source of like meme generation, feel good, laughing type of like content. It's a very prominent figure within the influencer industry. So starting off with the initial ask for the $5 million valuation, John, what were your initial thoughts on uh, influencers in the wild? I'm not going to like this one. You're not. I'm not going to follow Tank. <gasps> Why? I'd like to see him get ratioed <laughs> on this particular game. Oh I don't know. Okay. So a couple things here. Number one, I do think there are some interesting elements to this game. One is that kids just like want to be influencers. Like the number one job that every kid in the world wants right now is to be a YouTuber. Yes. Unboxing videos, free toys, ask anyone under the age of 10. My nieces are all about that like, life. It used to be, I don't know, like race car driver, doctor. Astronaut. I, astronaut. I mean- <laughs> I always tell my daughter this, by the way. She's like, I want to be an astronaut. And I'm like, oh. well, you better be good at science. You know, like what an incredible job. You're like an adventurer scientist. That's just like my dream come true. But kids want to be influencers. And so on that dimension, like mm -hmm. maybe getting them to play a board game around it would be good. And so there might be a market there for it. I also think it could be a good gag gift yes. because I think all of us have at least one friend who 
is secretly, maybe not so secretly trying to be an influencer. <laughs> yes. And all the novelty gifts, similar to like, what do you mean? Yeah. They're always taking the pics or sharing the memes yeah. or trying hard. And so like, this would be like a funny gift to give to your friend who thinks they're an influencer, but they're not really an influencer. <laughs> For the influencer wannabe in your life should be the tagline. <laughs> That's right. But there's some real problems here. Number one, influencers don't play board games. They just stay glued to their phones. Okay. Uh, that's a bit of a generalization. Uh, I feel like board games are making their way back. Think of like Settlers of Catan. Like that has blown up over the last five years. And this game has been around for a very long time. So yeah. I feel like Gen Z will play a board game. No way. Gen Z Just not won't this play board game. I think there's tweaks they could have made. <laughs> okay. So where are you on this game? You know, I... I don't think it's a bad idea to want to tap into a certain trend and create a game out of it, right? So there's like Cards Against Humanity was one of those few edge cases that was really successful. Mm -hmm. What do you meme is like a similar game where it's like you have a meme, you match it to a prompt. That's done really well. My problem here is that it's just so basic in nature. It's just a basic board game. Yes, where it's more like life, right? Like you land on a spot, you get 30,000 followers or a sweet brand deal. Oh, you accidentally roll and you find out that that company ended up having a scandal and mm. it brings down your like brand value. Like I think adding a little more like real world scenarios to this game and just make it feel a little more robust than just, hey, you just travel along this multicolored path and just get followers at the end of the day. Yeah. The thing that's amazing about the games that you brought up, mm -hmm. which are like Cards Against Humanity and what do you mean? I mean, the thing that's amazing about those games is they make you as the player like you're competing for cleverness and funniness, mm. right? And this game doesn't have any of those characteristics at all. This game is just about like outplaying the other players, which fine, but I don't know. I'm kind of with you is that I think this game could have been designed somewhat differently in order to make it potentially more interesting. I also just think looking at the game, it's kind of like all inside jokes to the influencer industry, which worries me. Mm -hmm. And it also is just built for like the old generation of influencers. Modern Social media has totally changed the dynamics of what makes an influencer. You know, I feel like moving from Instagram to TikTok, and there's a lot of rebellion against Instagram now and the fakeness mm -hmm. of it and, you know, that whole influencer culture. And now on TikTok, like, it's so much more about it's raw, it's more real. Anybody can be an influencer because the algorithm will get things trending much differently and the user experience is much more different. With TikTok, actually, creators, it's much more about the size of your brain than the size of your wallet. It's not about whether or not you've been able to do it for years and years and years and get a big following and spend money on that stuff. It's much more about your creativity and how much you're able to tap into memes and current trends. The history of influencers has changed so much. It's a little bit of a history lesson because I was very curious to understand where influencer marketing started. Did you know the influencer marketing has roots tracing back to the Roman Empire in 105 BCE? The first influencer was based around like coliseums and getting gladiators to come, which is just really fascinating because as we look over the years, we talk about influencers almost like it's a new concept, but really it's been around for American marketing for a long time. A lot of times the power of telling that story or that brand narrative was 
left to the company, it was left to the brand that they're leveraging, and they had full control over that. But what we saw coming around like the 2010s and as social media was evolving was companies giving more and more essentially leniency around their grasp over that brand narrative and control. So it's really interesting because you mentioned, you know, the older wave of influencers. I would define that as like our wave one influencers where they're very upfront about like, hey, this is an ad. This is me putting it on my face. If it's a beauty thing, this is me at like talking about how I incorporate this in my day-to-day. I think, Ariel, I think it was even wave two influencers. I think wave one influencers was actually the mommy bloggers. Mm. Talk about buying power. The mommy blogger craze was wild. Mm -hmm. It was kind of the first moment, I think, that brands realized not only how normal people could use the power of technology to actually get their opinion at scale, like word of mouth at scale. Mm -hmm. And brands like loved that idea because in theory, they could help shape that message and could drive it. But, you know, I think that was kind of wave one and it was kind of text-based and it was like, oh, you wrote blog posts and you distributed Mm -hmm. on Twitter and Facebook. Did your SEO. Yeah, like wave two, (laughs) I think, was actually your like picture perfect, my Hmm. life is untouchable, polished, aesthetic influencer Mm -hmm. chapter. And I think wave three is now like kind of just the TikTok generation and more real, more raw, more about quality of idea, et cetera. Yeah. We see that there's a creator category and creator economy, which is something that hasn't really existed, where it is so crucial for now influencers to be natural and raw and less polished with their kind of approach. But it's just a very fascinating industry to see how much it's changed from very brand heavy over time to idealistic aesthetic living to, hey, I really feel like I have a connection with this person. I love that they leverage this product in a really clever way that's very authentic to who they are. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the whole game is designed around a wave of influencer that just doesn't exist in the world anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it still exists, but it's on the way out anyway. And so that's another reason. I mean, then of course there's the valuation. He's got $140,000 in sales with very low margin and he wants to basically get a $5 million valuation for his company. So I think he's just a little (laughs) off there. The math's not mathing. But hey, I appreciated his full candor around, hey, I made up this number. Like how many times have we talked about on this show? I thought the same thing. I'm like, finally somebody's saying it, Ariel. (laughs) Valuations are just made up, everybody. You're just making them up. But let's talk about some of the sharks' responses. Mark really called it out. You didn't watch enough Shark Tank. For us to get our money back, they essentially would need to sell $5 million after tax cash flow. Yeah. And I think, you know, Kevin and Lori all saw it's very early for this product. This is one of the first times I've actually heard the sharks break down how the economics need to work for them mm-hmm. to want to invest. It's just so rare that they actually get into it. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to just believe, oh, they just see these products and they want to be part of them. And I guess they just make money somehow. You make the deal and magic happens. Yeah. Yeah. But the reality <laughs> is, of course, that like... They are very rational economic actors in almost all cases. And so they actually broke it down like, okay, look, if you want us to put $500,000 in for 10%, Mm -hmm. that means that just to get our money back and to break even on this investment, you would need to basically have $5 million after tax. The way that it all works is you make a bunch of revenue as a company. You have to basically spend on COGS and sales and marketing and R&D and all these other costs. And then you have some money left and then you have to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. And then whatever's left at the bottom of your cash flow statement, you can in theory pay out to shareholders of the company in the form of dividends. Mm-hmm. And when you run back up the income statement, you're basically like, oh my gosh, they need to be making like $50 million in revenue just to even get that $5 million after tax. 
And that's just to break even. What they actually want is they want to make money on it, like significant money. They want to double their money, which is they don't need them to make $50 million. Mm. They need them to make, you know, $100 million. Yeah. Would you ever invest in something this early on if he may have approached this differently or is it a bit of a mixed bag? I think there's actually substantially high risk involved in investing in this that you won't get your money back. And I think Tank's point of view is like, yeah, but like I have a built-in audience and therefore I'm going to sell a lot of this product. And so it's like actually kind of like a safe mm-hmm. investment. So you should actually take less of the company in exchange for giving me $500,000. And it just raises the question of can an influencer sell a product they've developed or not? Yeah. What does social capital weigh at the end of the day compared to actually bringing in like concrete sales and concrete numbers to work against? People follow Tank because he's super positive and he's happy and he like does a lot of memes that are really positive. Mm -hmm. That's not at all tied to buying a board game. If he was selling a book of his best memes, people may want to buy that because it's actually like in the realm of the thing that he is known for and that an audience is actually having a relationship with him about. This is like a board game so that they can be like him, but not mm-hmm. really because it's just about like rolling the dice and going to Tulum. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's going to be hard for him to sell this board game. I really wish he would have put something together, whether it's a content kit for how to create your own memes or something with his own like name and face and actually leverage that social capital more so than just for a separate game that just doesn't feel tied to the influencer brand. I wonder what his real name is. Oh. He can't be Tank Sinatra. <laughs> kind of got me thinking though, Ariel. Like, would you be Ariel on social media if you were an influencer or would you pick a pseudonym? You know, Ariel is already well known for like Disney and the Little Mermaid, but I would probably stay within the realms of a mermaid type thing. So I actually thought back in the day, because I like video games, I'd start like a Twitch channel. And I was like, well, what's a little like pun I could do with mermaids? So came up with a few different like La Sirene. Ooh, that's too highbrow. That's (laughs) too highbrow for Twitch. What? What does that mean? (laughs) It means mermaid in French. I was like, oh, Oh, that could be, yeah. (laughs) I mean, see? (laughs) What about you, John? (laughs) I was thinking I'd be Johnny Osmond. Stop. No. Johnny Osmond. Do you know who Donny Osmond was? I know about the Osmond family. Yes. I'm, I'm not, not that, that old, but I did see Donny Osmond and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat when I was a kid. And so what? maybe I'd be Johnny Osmond. In like Osmond. the 1940s? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Ariel's on a mean streak, everybody. Le Seren, <laughs> the mean mermaid in French. How do you say mean? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so getting back to the deal, offers, negotiations. So we know Tank, unfortunately, walked away without any offers from our sharks, which yeah. not very surprising. But hey, Tank, if you come out with a influencer guess who game, let us know. <laughs> We'd love to review that. <laughs> All right. Going on to our next segment, we have Tones of Melanin, which is presented by Ashley Jones, who's coming from Virginia Beach. She is asking for $300,000 for 5% of her business, which comes out to a $6 million valuation. Tones of Melanin is combined streetwear and collegiate wear together with reversible basketball shorts, reversible jackets, half-zip windbreakers. Think about mid-90s to like early 2000s windbreaker jacket style that's like the Charlotte Hornets or like the Chicago Bulls. It's very reminiscent to that kind of like street fashion wear, but she primarily focuses on serving HBCUs, which are historically Black colleges and universities. 
At an initial pitch, what were some of your thoughts regarding Ashley and the unique offering that she's providing to college students? I'll tell you, when you watch this woman on Shark Tank, you want to invest in her. Oh, yeah. She's got it. She's got it going on. And her product is cool. It is really yes. effing And affordable. Cool. I would pay $50 for shorts that I can flip inside out, get two outfits out of one. They're just super cool. The colors, <laughs> yeah. the designs, the throwback. They are just like cool as <laughs> So I like, I want to invest in her. The mm-hmm. products are super cool. The business is doing well. Right. It's got like over 3 million in revenue. She's making money. Yeah. She's got like positive net margins. One just, million year to date. I just can't do it. <sighs> I can't invest in it. I feel bad, but I think there's some structural issues with this business that are going to make it super hard over time for her to be really successful. I'm very curious to know if you think it's more a category challenge that like a lot of clothing apparel businesses face, or if you think it's a unique challenge to her. So No, it's a category challenge. Uh, Oh, please explain. Uh, So uh, inventory is one of the hardest things for a business to get right. I spent a bunch of my career at a company called Trunk Club that was owned by Nordstrom. And one of the things that I learned was just like the challenges with predicting the right inventory to buy Hmm. at the right volume and to time it the right way. Because inventory, basically, especially in merchandise and clothing, Mm -hmm. essentially it has really long lead times because you have to order it way in advance. You mostly have to pay up front. And she actually had a way around this, which was pretty rare, but I wouldn't be surprised if that falls apart for her at some point. Typically, you have to pay for the stuff in order for them to make it, which means like you need a huge cash outlay before you make any money, which is really hard for most small businesses. It has a super high risk of variability. Like you don't know what people are going to like or not like, and you don't know what teams are going to be hot and not hot. And so like you make these choices three to six months in advance, and then you just have to hope that you forecasted it right. And if you get it wrong, you've spent a ton of money that you just can't make back. And what it forces you as a business to do is it forces you into a discount death loop Mm -hmm. where you have to say, well, I have to go discount my stuff. And as soon as you discount your stuff, and I learned this from one of the Nordstrom brothers, as soon as you start discounting your stuff, the thing that happens is that people learn that you discount as a company and they say, I'm not going to pay full price. Conditioned buyers. wait till you do your sale. Yes. And so this is why it's so effing hard. And so any mm-hmm. clothing or merchandise company, I'd always think that this is a challenge, but she has opted to be a merchandiser for 40 different colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. So you take the challenge of not just like multiple SKUs within each university, but you multiply that challenge by 40. And I just feel like the ability for her to forecast and plan her inventory is going to be a real albatross for her business. And it makes me a little worried. Yeah. I don't necessarily think she would produce conditioned buyers though, especially in like the fashion and social media industry where like the drop culture has become such like Mm -hmm. a new thing. Maybe she just markets it as like, hey, we ran this limited time sweater. Mm -hmm. We're only going to drop it during this time when she's running low on inventory. So I do think there's still ways to sell through, but it is very interesting from like the longer lead time perspective. I guess this kind of boils down to like, if you look at inventory aside, you know, is her story, her position, the product that she's offering, is it enough of a differentiator within a highly competitive market like fashion and clothing? I think it is. I went to the University of Massachusetts, UMass. Mm -hmm. Go UMass. Woo. Woo. (laughs) I don't know what mascot that is. Bad mascot. (laughs) It's the Minuteman. Oh, go Minuteman. But I saw someone wearing a UMass hat and I was like, that is so lame. It's just like such a lame looking hat. Right. And I looked at her swag and I was like, if there was UMass swag like this, I would buy that swag. 
I agree. A lot of clothing that we do see in like bookstores, it's very basic. You mass order it from like a custom ink. Good joke, Ariel. (laughs) Womp womp. Thanks. So we do think her mission and the product is differentiated enough that it could serve well. This is the thing. The product is good. She's really good. She's doing well. I just cannot get over the fact that it's going to be so hard for her to figure out how to navigate the merch of 40 Mm -hmm. different schools, 40 different color schemes, logos. It feels like it's going to become a problem for her. And the amount of cash she's going to have to actually dump in to actually produce all that stuff is going to be really high. It just makes me think that as an investor, there's a really good chance that I won't end up owning as much of the company as Hmm. I want to because she's going to have to take so much more money over time to fund her operations. So something really interesting from her pitch that she mentioned is that she doesn't take a paycheck, which, you know, sometimes we see some founders that come on and do that. But I think that's such a testimony in some ways to how She's passionate. all in. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's like you, I actually, I wish she would take a living wage, certainly. Yes. <laughs> I hope she's taking a living wage. For all that success. But I do think investors love to see entrepreneurs who are willing to not take paychecks and not take money off the table Mm -hmm. because that just means they can invest more in the business. The thing is, if you're not taking a paycheck, that means that you are expecting to make your money with a payout in the end by producing like Mm -hmm. a super successful business. Because otherwise, like, why would you invest all your time and money in it? If you're working 40 to 60 hours a week and taking a CEO-level paycheck as an entrepreneur like this, there's a good chance that you're not going to really feel like you have to get an incredible financial outcome for the business. Mm-hmm. And the only way that investors get paid is with an incredible financial outcome. And so, like, as soon as they see an entrepreneur who's saying, I'm not taking a paycheck, that means the entrepreneur is fighting for that incredible financial outcome. And that means the entrepreneur and the investor's incentives are aligned, which is kind of the dream for any investor. So I think going into some of the shark's responses, I was surprised that Lori and Barbara weren't more interested in this, especially Lori, but I felt like they both could lean in really well from the branding and marketing side. She could really take it to the next level and do something like Dove does with their Real Women campaign. So maybe you showcase college athletes that recently are able to have name, image, and likeness deals. Like if you're going for more of the sports field, maybe you have them be front and center and show the actual shades and tones of melanin. So a little surprised that they backed out. Was there anything surprising for you from the shark reaction side? This seemed to me like something that Damon would be all over really interested in, just given like he's an apparel expert, yeah, right? And so you take a business that is as good as hers, that's already putting cash out. Right? <laughs> he knows all the challenges she's going to face, which are basically inventory and scale. And he just has all the network to solve that. And he's mastered that. It felt like he could make a lot of money. I think ultimately he had competitive issues with it, which is why he didn't invest. I think ultimately he was like, you know, I'm too close to this space. I've got my own plays that are kind of like this. Mm. And I always respect when sharks do that. It's like, this is the flip side of VC incentive alignment, right? If you're like, hey, I don't want Mm -hmm. a founder to take a paycheck because I want their incentives aligned with my extraordinary financial outcome incentives. Mm -hmm. And it's the same exact thing if a VC goes in on multiple, like you want them all in on you. Right. So Mark offered $300,000 for 12% stake, which I felt was fair given the fact that, you know, she seemed like she could have used like a little bit more guidance overall and a partner to kind of scale up. I think Mark made sense with his history with basketball and knowing the ins and outs of like the industry. So I think this is one of those brands that I'm actually really excited because I'm curious to see if they're going to shift away from the collegiate angle and more into the sports niche and like sports marketing just based off of the products that they have and Mark. I mean, I 
I think this is a smart investment for Mark. I think Mark also has tons of those connections and his sports connections are going to pay off big time for her. I'm sure she's going to go up into NBA teams and probably do very, very well. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out in stores for any tones of melanin gear then. (laughs) Create Like the Greats hosted by Ross Simmons is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So going on to our last guest in the pod, we have a father-son combo. Break out the tissues. What a roller coaster. Yes, we have Mark and Kenzo Singer. They're coming in asking for $25,000 for 5%, which comes out to a $500,000 valuation, which is honestly, I feel like one of the more fair valuations that we've reviewed today. Iris are glasses that spring open and snap shut, but they can be worn around your wrist. So essentially, they are like three-fourths glasses that have like a little magnet that you can wear literally on your wrist. So if you're at the grocery store and you need to read something really quickly, it's accessible. They're a snap bracelet that are your reading glasses. Yes, which that took me a little while because I'm like, is this glass? Is this fiber? Like what's the actual material? But they have a patent for it. So really providing a technology solution that's not currently in the space right now and something that they have exclusive rights for. They start off their pitch, I think, just really knowing their audience of, have you ever been in a grocery store and you want to see something on the shelf? And maybe I'm not in this audience. My eyesight isn't declining yet, but I could see the use case for folks that would come in. I just personally put my glasses in a purse and call it a day, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. Well, I got a lot of thoughts, Ariel. Once again, you're coming in (laughs) hot on me. I try coming in gentle this time. Ariel Méchant Serene, the mean mermaid, talking about how I need reading glasses. I don't need reading glasses yet, but my eye doctor did tell me at my last eye checkup that it will be literally any day now. She was like, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but you're definitely going to need reading glasses. I was like, what do you mean? Why am I going to need reading glasses? And she's like, because everybody needs them because your eyes just like change. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, that's so sad. I was like, can I do anything to stop needing (laughs) reading glasses? And she was like, no. Oh, It's inevitable. So it's a huge market. Mm -hmm. I would just say like this pitch was extraordinary on a couple of dimensions. It was a banger of an opening just because the father just delivered this extraordinarily funny line. Yes. And then they like explain this product and they're like, the product's doing pretty well. And then they're like, well, what's your deal, dad? And he's like, oh, like, you know, I'm just just a woodworker and I haven't done much. I did invent um, Gorilla Glue and sold that. (laughs) And they were like, I'm sorry, what? And he was like the most humble, successful multi-entrepreneur we've ever met. And he came across as just totally super humble. And then they went on to basically reveal that the whole reason they're here on Shark Tank is that the father doesn't think that he has it in him to help his son grow this company. And he wants to find good hands to like guide his son and everybody's crying. Lori's crying. Everybody's crying. We're all crying. Ariel was crying. (laughs) The mean mermaid was crying. Yeah. (laughs) It touched her cold heart. La Méchante Serene was teared. (laughs) And so it was a really good pitch and it was hard not to be like, oh, wow. Okay. These people have a product that actually is going to sell a crap ton of units 
the economics on it are good. Yeah. The father is super successful entrepreneur. Like, let's go. I mean, $30.50 to make. Yeah. Retails only for 110 which is very fair. I'll pay, you know, a little more than that for like a single pair of glasses mm -hmm. that I have all the time with me versus something that I can take on the go. They've had $28,000 in sales for the first nine months, which is pretty early on. They're very new. I think they mentioned with like their marketing, they're only spending like $45 a day. Yeah, they're just, they're not marketing it yeah. yet. And so I think it's great. This is like, this is the mm -hmm. perfect type of business where somebody has a product that is positioned to give off a lot of cash. Mm -hmm. And it just needs expertise around how to get distribution on it, which the sharks are fantastic at. So here's where I'm not entirely sold. I think them being a standalone business is going to be much more challenging than them essentially licensing or franchising mm. their technology to produce glasses like this. Because when you look at the eye industry, Luxottica owns like over 60% of U.S. glasses sales. It's technically not considered a monopoly because monopoly by traditional definition is, hey, you don't really have much price variation, whereas Luxottica does offer like multiple prices depending on if you're going through Lens Crafters or Warby Parker. So you do have options in the market there. But I just feel like this is such a hard industry to break into with just the Iris brand itself. And hearing from the founder's father too, because he mentioned all of his most successful deals in the past were based around royalty issued deals. So this could be a great opportunity to mm -hmm. license this and then ask for a royalty to your Luxottica or any other eyewear brands internationally to try and like see if you can just add on to their existing portfolio. Yeah. But do you think it's strong enough as a standalone business? It depends what kind of distribution they can get on it. <laughs> I'm actually pretty torn on this and I don't know the best path to go. <laughs> I don't know what the economics of licensing this technology would look like. I do think glasses have very high margin. The things that you need for licensing to be successful, just mm -hmm. to be super clear, is you need the amount that you get per sale to be decently high. And you need the company you license it to, to have a lot of scale mm -hmm. because you are going to get much less per unit sold. And so, yeah, licensing to Lexotica is a interesting idea, but I, I do think this product kind of sells itself. No. Yeah, it definitely does. Listen, like many people during COVID, I acquired numerous pieces of junk to put in the background behind my camera. So yeah. it looked like I was, you know, worldly and interesting. Like you're interesting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like one of the things that I acquired during that time was this hand. It's like a wooden hand. What? You've seen these in the background. You know, this is from Ikea. You've never seen a hand? For folks listening in, John is holding up one of those like tarot mannequin hands that you see that are like, this is all your tarot reading. Rock oh and roll. Oh my gosh. And now it's a rock, it's a rock and roll. Okay. Okay. All you got to do is put one of these next to every register in CVS <laughs> and snap the glasses down it. And people will literally just be like, I want that. <laughs> Because everybody I know that has reading glasses mm -hmm. struggles with the same thing. They're like, I own like nine pairs of reading glasses. They're everywhere, right? Uh, like I, I put them on my head. I hang them. I like people have to wear the neck chain. They got to yes. do all these things. Yeah. They go Chuck Schumer and they like put them on the end of their nose. And I, that's like my nightmare is if I have to walk around the rest of my life with reading glasses on the end of my nose. So I don't know. I just think people will see this and they'll be like, oh my God, reading glasses. That, like It's not like you need prescription on them. They're literally just like pre-prescribed to different strengths and you just be like, I want that one. You just rip it off and you try it on your wrist and you're like, I'll take this and you'll buy. So I think they might be able to sell a crap ton of them with a little clever merchandising. <laughs> and with that, they could be number one. Da, 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 da. <laughs>
I can't believe I got to use the hand. I'm so excited. I love it. Yeah, I had a use case. Thank you. Thank you. Know, you. Maybe it's because I grew up wearing glasses all the time. So maybe I don't sympathize much with the struggle of having to like bring your reading glasses. Mm-hmm. So I may not be like the right audience for this. And I do agree of like, you know, all the current solutions in market are either you wear it around your neck. You don't really have anything that's like bracelet adjacent. But I just, I don't know. I think it's for a very certain market. I think about people who I like, think as a gift, it'd be great. Work with their hands. Mm. If you're this guy, if you're Mark and you work in a wood shop, what are you gonna like hang your reading glasses from a string around your neck and get them caught in a circular <laughs> saw? Like, no, like, come on, man. I just think they're gonna sell a lot. I would totally invest. And I think Mark has a track record as an entrepreneur. I think his son has an awesome design that's super cool. Mm-hmm. I would probably send CVS a hand in the mail. <laughs> with the glasses around it and call it a day. I can't get past the fact, like, I think this is a business that's better off primed for a licensing deal. I just not sold on the D to C, but as we go, yeah. If you can't dream big enough, Ariel, that's okay. (laughs) That's fine by me. (laughs) Just kidding. Who's the mean mermaid now? (laughs) (laughs) Right. John is the mean mermaid. (laughs) So this offer period was probably, I think this is the first time we have ever seen the sharks like make the entrepreneurs leave the room so the sharks could collaborate and come up with a deal to present back to them, which is just so interesting. It's a full like role reversal kind of play. Everybody's like, well, I want in. I want in. I mean, I want in. They were like, "Uh, could you just give us a minute? We need to talk. It never (laughs) happens. They're mortal enemies. Right. And that's how you know they nailed the process. And I think the heartfelt nature of the dad, and I think a lot of the investors could relate to this, right? Of like, you spend your life building up a business or being an entrepreneur and making things successful. There's a lot of life that you miss out on. There's a lot of time. So I think in a way, hearing from the father about saying, you know, I just want my son to be taken care of. I don't have much time left. I think that really struck a chord with them because, you know, secretly that's probably a lot of fears that they have, you know, when you try to be successful. So I thought it was great that they all kind of jumped in at once for the opportunity. But as we know, they came back with a $125,000 offer, which is way more than the 25K that was originally asked for. And they settled on 20% equity. But in this instance, both of our founders would have essentially all five sharks um, working with them. So, I mean, for 20%, they each get five and it's the same proportion to what their original ask was just multiplied by five. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it on Shark Tank. It was a feel good. We're all in it together moment, which is maybe that's what the next season of Shark Tank will all be about. <gasps> Who knows? All coming together. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts around Iris? I'm in. Any minute now, when my eyes go and I have to get reading glasses, I'm going to think about some iris. Anyway, I wish them luck. I wish everybody on this final episode of this season luck. Honestly, some really cool companies. And, uh, you know, Tank, although I wasn't in on you and your company in particular, thanks for all the laughs over the years. So who are you giving your golden bite to? You have just one. You're going to have to pick between Iris and Tone Samelin, it sounds like. I'm going Iris. I'm going Iris. um, Definitely. This is a great product and a great story. Very heartfelt story. Heartfelt. Very authentic, genuine. They created that emotional connection that works so well with marketing and branding. If you want an example of how emotions carry your brand forward, that's a great one. It's possible none of it was true. It's possible he intends to run the whole business, but man, he knows how to pull hard. It's just a PR like effort. And if that's what they did, Uh, I'm investing even more money. (laughs) Go get them, Mark. (laughs) 
So my golden bite that I would pick, I have to go with the tones of melanin. I just feel like there's so much opportunity for this brand to expand beyond just HBCUs and really tie back into like the college athlete market and put a fun spin on like retro retro clothing. I'm using air quotes because I don't consider the 90s retro. Some Gen Z may disagree, but yeah, going to go for tones of melanin for mine. I like it. I like it. That does it for us this week. I want to thank our Oz behind the curtain, Matthew Brown. Additional support for the show comes from Melanie Romero and Robert Hartwig. And thanks to the HubSpot Podcast Network for keeping the mics on. Subscribe to the show. Tell your family, your friends, that guy you walked by in the street the other day. No, not the one with the cutoff sleeve t-shirt. Ugh, pass on that first interaction. The other one, the one with the dog. Ugh, a dog. Okay, that's it for me. See you next week for another bite. Oh, and you're my favorite. Don't forget that.